Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rules of the Game, a podcast for Independent Education's Great Conversations Project, where your host, Butch Porter, that's me, has in-depth conversations with good people about great ideas. If you're listening to this on the Great Conversations page or on our Patreon, we're excited to have you. Please consider becoming a subscriber on either of those pages to get access to special content. Also, for your convenience, please add us to your podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Rules of the Game Podcast. My name is Butch Fuller. I'm your host. With me today is my illustrious co-host, the beautiful and talented, the one and only, Jessica Hausberger. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing really good. I'm outside this morning. It's so beautiful out here. How are you doing? It does look good. It's pretty pretty day here, too. No, we're good. I'm blessed. You know, rocking and rolling. Excellent. So, um, yeah, no, so we're... we're um, my allergies are kind of drive me a little crazy, so my voice is kind of off today, but I, I hope our listeners forgive me. Um, our plan for today, uh, Jessica and I's plan for today, was to do a movie review. It's about a 10-year-old movie, I think, 2011, um, uh, called Tree of Life. So um, I watched it last night, just like, you know, we have a reading group we do during the, during the uh, you know, fall fall, winter, spring season, we, we take a break from the summer, but over the fall, winter, spring, we do a reading group through Great Conversations on the great books, and and that usually involves a movie assignment. Like, every every reading has a movie assignment. So I'm used to assigning movies that I may or may not have seen or may not even know if it's any good, you know, right. and I have to watch it. And my wife is used to, you know, I have a movie assignment and I have to watch it, and, you know, and that's what we're going to do. So, um so what's funny is that recently I've been for, for my educational purposes for, for my company, I've been trying to get the hang of poetry, not like trying to learn it necessarily like to write it or to be a master of it, but try to understand it a little better as a, as a, as an educational tool. Mm -hmm. And my church actually talks about poetry a lot, um, which is, you know, one of the cool things I like about my church. So, um, but it occurred to me while I was watching this movie, and if any of you have seen it, Tree of Life, Terrence Malick, um, <clears throat> has uh, Brad Pitt, Sean Penn, and uh, oh my gosh, the hand of God just came down to, uh, <laughs> to us. <laughs> yeah, so when you put your hand at the camera, it does look like a very large hand. <laughs> All right, so. Um, Sorry about that. That's okay. No, that was awesome. What about the logo kinda, or the background? Is that bothering you too? I think it's fine. No, it's okay. not too bad. So the issue is that I think that I have a lack of experience in treating a movie poetically. Right. Yeah. So, right. Okay. So the way that the way that good poetry works, and this is just what I'm learning, the great good poetry works is you read it and then you have to read it again. And then maybe you wait a few weeks and you come back and you read it again. The, the last thing you want to do is 
like dissect it line by line and word by word and try to find and try to like, you know, give it an autopsy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's then, a 10th grade English AP class. I mean, come on. Well, actually even it doesn't matter because the point is you, you might kill it. Right. If you take something apart and try to put it back together again in a way that makes sense to you, you might actually kill all the love and beauty and happiness that yes. embodies the poem, right? So I decided after watching the movie last night that it was more of a poetic creation uh, than a prose one. And I'm, I love movies. I'm a movie guy and I can analyze movies and I can enjoy movies without analyzing them uh, too much. Um, but I think this one required a poet's approach. I think it requires because you even said it when we started talking about it, that you wanted to watch it again uh, before you um, before you were able to review it. Um, and so that's all I have to say on it, because I can't, I'm afraid if I, if I say too much about it, I won't do it justice. Uh, I do know that many people are not going to make it through, like, I don't know, for instance, if I were to just pull an example out of a hat, my wife, uh, are not going to make it through the first half an hour. My husband could not watch the film. You know, he could not. I can watch almost anything. Um, so, you know, I have a pretty high tolerance for bad movies. Uh, I'm getting a little better or worse, if you will, uh, at ditching movies about 30 minutes in. If I think it's not going anywhere, that does happen occasionally. Um, but this one wasn't that problem. It was just... Uh, the beginning, there was a lack of cohesiveness to me. There was no dialogue in the first 45 minutes of the movie. Like, no dialogue. And actually, there was very little dialogue in the entire movie. Um, almost none. Uh, but at least after the first 45 minutes, you kind of settle into the kind of a real-time story. And so this, say, third and fourth act uh of the of the movie is is cohesive enough and you're there's you know the timeline is consistent and you're following these boys and, and their parents as they navigate the world um i didn't really see a lot of it that it was and this was kind of what brought it as an interesting topic to me i didn't see a lot of it as as um as characteristically southern or texas right i mean it was set in Texas, that was the where the boys were growing up. Um, I do think there was kind of an age issue. Like, it was set in the 50s, and then Sean, anyway, and Sean Penn, it must be like in his 60s, I guess, and when he's, you know, looking back, I guess his dad's still around. And uh, I also had trouble believing that either of them had 19-year-old kids, you know, and that they, they had them looking very young, you know, and so. Um, that kind of threw me off and distracted me. So, but I didn't see anything really southern about it. Did you see anything southern about it? Like characteristically, really southern? No, that's interesting. I think the the whole. I, mean, I really like what you said about the poetic approach of the film. I think some films are stories, you know, like you said, and other films are a little bit more abstract, a little more indirect, and are more of an experience than a direct story. And that film to me is extremely artistically innovative and 
as far as films go. It's why I think it's, you know, one of the top 10 films I've ever seen is, you know, not only because of the innovation, but the underlying themes. But I think one of the underlying themes, you said, does it have a Southern feel is, you know, this, the universality of human experience. And so I think, you know, it's almost artistically intentional that, yeah, it really wouldn't matter if they were in the South. It wouldn't matter if they were in the United States. And perhaps it wouldn't matter if it was the 1950s, if there are, if there are some elements to it that portray universal human experiences. Does that yeah, I think, feel? well, I think there is an understanding of, of God in it, right? I mean, there's, there's not, there's definitely not a, uh, a very strong, nihilistic um bent right so it's 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 extremely uh it's extremely um aware of you know some sort of higher power you know controlling things um i kind of so so anyway i i i think to go any deeper than that it would take another view uh to the earlier point um but when you first mentioned it, I thought it was going to be something that showed, you know, show what it was like to live in 1950s Texas. And, and I didn't see any of that. And so my brain went in another direction, but, um, so it is kind of universal. I guess you could say, yes, universal human experience. I mean, by definition, if you're talking about God and humans, then you're talking universal human experiences. Um, I'm not even sure that these days, and this is kind of what I wanted to get to, I'm not even sure that these days someone who lives in New York City looks at someone who lives in rural Texas and views them as the same category of person. You know, right, right. I, think, I mean, I don't know. Am I am I off there? We have so much diversity in this country. It's so interesting. Um, even within the geographical regions, we have so much diversity. And, um, you know, I live in suburban Tennessee and I sat down with a gentleman. I, I'm doing a little bit of insurance sales, as you know, on the side. And I sat down uh -huh. with, a, with, a, with an African-American gentleman who lives in pretty much suburban slash rural Tennessee. And he works at a Tyson food factory. And he was telling me that this Tyson food factory that has 1600 employees that right. he said he works with people from Egypt and people from South Korea. And, you know, he's talking about how <laughs> multi-ethnic uh, his work environment is. And I'm talking sure. really, I mean, he's a country guy, you know, and right, he right, grew right. up and, he, all he's ever known is rural Tennessee and, you know, he's having this international experience in his factory. And, um, but yes, geographically, and, you know, when you look at the West coast, when you look at the Northeast, when you look at the South, you know, you kind of hear this whole thing about we're living in a bubble. Right. And sure. we start, we do start to become a little bit, you know, in that, in that bubble and, and start, I think, Honestly, you start to just think everybody's like you, I think. 
Right. And then when you go to a place where people are completely different, or maybe you watch a film where you see people living in a completely different cultural context, you're like, whoa, this is so weird, you know? And, and it doesn't really get better as you get older. Um, I think as you get older, your bubble becomes more specific. Your bubble oftentimes becomes more people that look like you, more people that make the same amount of money as you, more people that have the same cultural background as you. I would say it becomes more that way as you get older. What do you think? Yeah, that's probably true, especially if you don't. I mean, I kind of moved away from from my cultural center, if you will. You know, I grew up in uh, urban, suburban Louisiana. Um, and I live in exurbs, you know, uh, Virginia, uh, DC Metro, whatever. It's very different. Uh, there are similarities. You don't have to go very far to find the South, if you will, from here. Um, you got to go about an hour South to get to the South. Um, but I don't know. I mean, do you feel like you've kind of stayed close to home? Like you have, right? You stay pretty close to where you are from culturally. No, I would say I made a pretty big change as well. I grew up. Oh, that's in, no, I, I remember this now. Yeah, Go ahead. Yep. Cleveland, Ohio, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, about an hour east of Cleveland, but still a very northern environment. Um, when I, I went to college in Virginia, though, and it, it was a cultural shift for sure that I wasn't even really aware of. Wait, you went but, to Liberty? Yeah. Went to Liberty and all the I girls. I showed up to class the first day. All these girls have these long flowery dresses on and their hair curled and full face of makeup and jewelry and all these Southern charms. I show up and like, you know, the I had to wear a skirt. So it was like the closest thing I could find to, to a skirt that felt like sweatpants, you know, with no makeup on and my hair up in a bun. And like, hey, how's everybody doing? You know? Um, <laughs> Yo. <laughs> I don't agree with her about that. You know, everybody's like, whoa, who's this girl, you know? But um, after having lived in Tennessee for over a decade now, I think I've absorbed some of the Southern charms of the culture. I mean, I think that's You most apparent. certainly have. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, the, lis <laughs> the listeners may have noticed that my, um, that my uh, audio has improved in the last couple of minutes. That's because I switched it to the correct microphone. So hopefully <laughs> I sound better than I did uh, talking about uh, Terrence Malick's uh, Tree of Life in the intro there. Um, <clears throat> because, and, it, and if you need to go back to listen to that again carefully, like a good poem, <clears throat> yeah, you probably should. So what does it mean to be a Southerner in 2021, though? And I guess, and I guess, you mentioned Southern charms. I mean, is it the same? Is it different? Is it worse, better, more cosmopolitan, less cosmopolitan? Um, I mean, I'd like to get to what it means to be an American in general, because there's a lot of regional differences. Mm -hmm. But just the whole concept of the South and what the South means Um. Number one, it's constantly conflated with something very different, and that is, but related, obviously, and that is race issues. 
uh, and the history and the bad history and our scars and our um, fault lines, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are lots of those and they have to be addressed and reckoned with and faced head on, if you will. I don't think that's all there is to the South. What's that? I said, I'm fixing to reckon here with them soon. Are you trying to speak redneck? Is that what that was? That was a good effort. Yeah. When we first moved to Tennessee, my daughter was, uh, you know, about nine or ten years old. And she goes, Mom, why is everybody always fixing stuff around fixing, here? Fixing, too. I was in California one time, and I was uh, in, at a pool. My, my mom lived in California for a while, and I was out visiting her. And uh, I was in the, you know, the neighborhood pool or whatever, and I was about to leave. And so... I said, all right, all right, guys, I, I'm fixing to leave. And they just started laughing, right? They just started laughing. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, I said, what uh, What are y'all laughing at? He said, fixing to? What does that mean? I'm like, it means I'm fixing to. I'm preparing to. I'm about to leave, right? Uh, why don't you say about to? Well, about to is a little different than fixing to, right? It's, it has a slightly different connotation. Uh, we would say I'm gonna leave. Well, I'm gonna. Well, that means that means like sometime in the future, like later, I'm gonna leave eventually, right? But I'm about to. I don't know. Just I always said fix into. That's what we say. You know, if you don't like it, then you can fix into whatever. So uh, those little idioms. That's where because accents don't always give everything away. It's the terms you use, right? Uh, it's it's a little I reckon uh, I reckon is a good one. I used to say the different states had different uh, had different phrases. Like in North Carolina, it was uh, right smart. First time somebody said right smart to me, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? What'd you say? Right, <laughs> right what? Is that like the right honorable? Is that what that is? Um, so and it actually does have it has. British, you know, has much older English sources, that whole right smart thing. Um, you know, and uh in Texas it was yeah, buddy. No, 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 that was uh that was Alabama, yeah, buddy. Oh. Uh and uh Texas was uh do what? Right? They don't just say <laughs> what they say do what in Kentucky they do that too. And I've started doing that because I have some family in Kentucky, so it's um do what? Like if they don't know what you said. You do be what? saying something, do what? Instead of saying, say what? They say, do what? Which is funny because we mix up doing and saying all the time, right? So he went, he went like, and then, you know, you're going to say what they were saying. Or uh, and then he said, wow, you know, or it's really weird how we switch doing and saying uh, in idiomatic expressions. That's not a Southern thing. That's all over the place. But what does it mean to you to be – what does Southern Charms mean to you? Let's just go there. You said you're picking up Southern Charms. What does that mean? Well, I think for me, number one, it's a, a real – there's a real friendliness in the South that you don't get anywhere else, like a real warmth. Um, I mean, I have so many friends, and <laughs> I mean – I, I, I can't even explain. I've lived, I've lived in Arizona. I've lived in California. I've lived in Washington. So I've covered the West Coast. You know, I've lived in, in the Deep South. You know, I've, I grew up in the, the Northwest and I've spent some time up 
and I mean, I grew up in the Northeast and I've spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York. Sure. But n nowhere are people as warm and friendly as, as the South. And a lot of times I think people can get uh, a bad rap, like it's a fake type of warmth, but I mean, I've, I find it to just be, I mean, if, if you bring over fresh vegetables, fresh vegetables to my house and tell me to have a wonderful day and it's fake warm. Well, I'll take that fake warm. I'll all take day that any day. <laughs> um, what is but, the difference between fake warmth and warmth? I mean, to be honest, who cares? <laughs> um, to be honest, it's, it's almost, it's, it's an etymological paradox. If you, if you really want to uh, exactly have a good time with it. I mean, I mean, uh, are, are we supposed to know the heart and soul of, you know, and, and exactly what people were thinking when they talked to us. No, if they talk to us nice, that means they're being nice. That's what it is. Right. A hundred percent. So I'm not, I've always been amazed by the, the accusations. This is a good, this is, it's a good way to go start this. So falsity and fakeness has often been assigned to Southerners. Um, and it, it astounds me in a way Right. It makes me. Um, and I guess I've really never thought about it that much, to be honest. I mean, but it, sitting here thinking about it, it really does astound me. Like, you know, what do you expect people to do? Just, you know, to if they're having a bad day to make sure you know about it and complain. Right. So you, everybody wants to be a New Yorker and just complain to like neurotic New Yorker and complain all day. Is that that's a stereotype too, right? I mean, I, I'm not saying everybody in New York is complaining all the time, but that's the sort of that's the stereotype of your, you know, of of a of a New Englander is that they're just ah, you know, um, but most of New England is not like that. Most of New England is just as charming as you know. If you're, uh, of course, I know that New York is not technically New England. I get it; it's Mid Atlantic and all that, but it's all blurring together now, right? New York is North. Right. If you're especially if you're from where I'm from, I mean, that's, you know, they're all Yankees. It don't matter. Right. But but seriously, you know, if you the rest of New England, for instance, if you're like in Vermont or New Hampshire and even, you know, the rural parts of um, of most of New England, Connecticut, Massachusetts, people are very friendly. You know, they're they're very they're warm and they're friendly and they're talkative and all those things. So uh, so it's kind of an urban versus rural thing. Right. So how much of it is an urban versus rural thing and how much of it is southern versus northern, if yeah, you had to guess? Well, there's definitely some urban versus rural aspects to it, um, but there's definitely some north versus south there. And, you know, it's funny. I did read this book one time and I bet you're familiar with it, too. Um, I think it's called Guns, Germs and... Steel. I maybe I have to confess I have not read that. I have friends that have told me that I need to, and I keep saying I'm going to, but around the time that I probably would have read it, probably four to six years ago, I started going in a completely different direction with my reading. Right. So I just haven't gotten it's to me, it's it's very political and is trying to make a point about you know society and the well, sources. I confess that I did not read the book. I only oh read come on, you're going to talk book. about it. You haven't even read it. Jeez, no, I, I've only read excerpts from it and reviews of it. And honestly, that was enough. 
just the concept is you is is interesting about how you know a few a few pieces of technology and geographical location can really impact a culture something as simple as like weather patterns can really impact a culture and when you look at the south even just the warmth of it um from a weather standpoint i mean I don't know if you've ever been to Cleveland, Ohio, Butch, but nine months out of the year, I mean, you just want to be inside your house. Like, and six yeah, months out of I, year, I can you have see to that. be inside your house, you know? Whereas I can see that. down south, you've got this back porch culture where almost 12 months out of the year, people can come and go on the back porch and you've got, you know, people gathering to eat. People used to gather to eat outside, you know? And you've got just these different cultural things that develop. Don't the... Uh... Don't the crops make a difference too? Like if you're, I don't know much about it, but I know that with some exceptions, like rice is an all year thing. And we, we do grow some rice in Louisiana and Texas. But for the most part, a lot of the, the crops that we grow in the South are very seasonal. You know, they're very, you know, most of the work is done, you know, in the beginning and the end, right? So you got like, you know, fall and spring, that you're working hard and the rest of it, you're just, you know, there's downtime. And so mm -hmm. you develop a less frenetic culture that way. Right. Yes. So the agricultural thing all by itself creates a very seasonal and you're sort of also at the, at the mercy of the elements. And so you don't, there's a lot less you have under your control. Whereas the nature of a city is that you decided to control everything. Right. You're, right, you know, right. Everything, right. You know, your, you know, your streets are laid out the way you want them to, and the buildings are, you know, as dense as you want to make them, and and you know, and you uh, create transportation uh, um, grids to supplement the roads. Uh, you know, whether it be buses or or trains or you know, taxi cabs or whatever. And everybody's everybody can be anywhere at any time. And it's and it's mostly capital driven as opposed to, uh, you know, real estate driven. Um, so it's a different world, like it's a different mindset and it's more fast paced. Right. Yeah. So that's but that's still northern versus that's still urban versus rural. Um, well, I think if we're looking at the South, there's two things we should. But the weather, you mentioned the weather, like the warm, it's warmer. So people are outside more, they're more social. What else other than. Um, I think church life is different in the South. Um, right. It didn't always, it wasn't always that way. It kind of was a reverse, right? I mean, in, in, in the founding, the, the real congregationalist Christians were in New England. Right. Yeah. And, and we were a bunch of, you know, we're just trying to make money down South, you know, it was all farmers and ranchers not ranchers but um uh you know plantation owners or whatever and uh it was really cash crops and so they're you know, mostly anglican or whatever but they weren't most of the people in the south weren't fighting religious oppression and establishing you know heaven on earth in their communities like they were in new england and at some point there was a reversal i've never really researched when that happened like there's when, a the question that you ask, if you live in the Northwest or you live in the Northeast or maybe even the Southwest, the, qu the first question you ask is, do you believe in God? In the South, the first question you ask is, where do you go to church? Where do you go to church? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I, in most most towns that I've spent, I've spent a lot of time all over the South, as you know. Um, 
I mean, mostly like all the states, like all of them. I've spent a little time in all the southern states. I mean, more than a few weeks, you know, in some cases longer than that. And, um, you know, a lot of these small towns will have a church on every corner, you know. Oh, yeah. um, I don't know that that's necessary. I mean, from my modern point of view, from my point of view now, I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. Uh, although I think it's better than what's happening. And that is um, there's two different kinds of churches that are growing. And then there's one kind of church that's fallen away. And uh, that does, that does make it make things very different. Even in the South, I think it's affecting um, how we operate. Where do you go to church? That is kind of the first question to ask anybody in the South. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it would go before, uh, what do you do for a living in most cases? Yeah. So what is the difference there to you? What well, makes there's a culture different? in the South that embraces belief in God, number one. There's um, some just some old-fashioned values in the South. And, and I think, honestly... You know, there's a sociological phenomenon that I'm sure you're familiar with, Butch, and that's where, like, a social group of people, the more they, you know, specify <coughs> what they stand for, the more, like, cohesive that little social group is and the more bonded they are. And, um, and I think kind of the more we see differentiation between culture in other areas of the United States, the more the South actually starts to identify with their core values, even more so than they have in the past, possibly like almost like um, a little bit of, um, you know, a back, like a, I don't want to say backlash, but, you know, kind of a response to, to some of these other values that are popping up around the country. The more okay. that happens, the more Southerners are like, okay, these are the old fashioned values that we stand for. And I think sometimes um, people who don't have those same values maybe are not completely the same, want to sort of use a red herring and throw in things like racism or, you know, anything they can to sign sort of like, if you live in the South, you're like, what? What are you talking about? Like, But, um, but the actual values of Southern people are um, patriotism towards our country. Um, you know, respect towards people who have served in the, in the military, respect towards God um, and a belief in God, um, a belief that, you know, that while we are significant because we were created God, by God, but we're also insig insignificant because, you know, we're just a little speck in the universe. Um, sure. We believe, you know, you respect your elders, you respect the people that go before you and you don't try to act like you know more than the people that went before you um you know you you kind of basically you know build on what they've already given you instead of rejecting sure. it and making up your own stuff we feel like that's foolishness well, that's, and that's... working hard and loving people and showing up and and doing the small things for people that's what southerners believe in is you stop you see somebody on the side of the road well you stop and you help them out <clears throat> you slow down a little bit bless you Pardon me. Yes. All that value stuff. I'm allergic to that. I can't, 
No, it's funny. It's funny you use the term values. Um, now you curl your hair in the morning. For God's sake, you get up, you put some lipstick <laughs> on, put a skirt on every now and then if you're a lady, wear some high heels. And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's definitely part of the culture. Like if you're a girl, you are, celebrate it. You're like if the you're worst. A guy, open the doors. That's right. You're like the worst feminist ever. Um, so I, I, I get... The, the word values is funny. I've heard people talk about, you know, because right now we have a lot of friends in the corporate world that are dealing with things having to do with, you know, what are the values of our company? And, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, they'd be able to say things like excellence and leadership in the field and, and character and integrity and honesty and, you know, things like that. But now their values are almost completely almost completely dominated by things like, you know, diversity and, and uh, inclusion, equity, fairness, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think, um, I think that kind of thing is, is nigh upon nihilistic actually, you know, once you, once you flatten and I, I explained this to a friend of mine the other day, I said, you know, once you make, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity, especially when you throw in equity as your number one value, it really has a tendency to corrupt almost all the other ones. You know, it's hard to talk about equity and then in the same breath talk about uh, individual, you know, uh, excellence and, and achievement, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, because not everybody's going to achieve the same thing. So you automatically don't have equity. They're kind of mutually exclusive. Even diversity and equity are actually logically incoherent. But I think it does, it does hit us the wrong way when i say us i mean southern mostly christians when you start saying things like you know crt is your value set i'm like i mean i might even agree with some of the tenants but it's not my values i mean that's it just doesn't rank that high and actually if any of them are worthy of anything they are they are things that stem from my values right if i if i believe that I should treat people equally, regardless of say, you know, gender, sex, uh, race, or whatever, then, then it stems from my values of treating people like human beings as creatures of God first before anything else. So we've we've had that discussion before, but mm -hmm. I just think I, we're putting stuff in the wrong order. You know, if you're a Southerner or a, especially a, a, you know, traditionalist conservative Christian Southerner or whatever the, uh, the, 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 the adjectives are, then it's, it's going to make you kind of scratch your head when you hear somebody talk about value sets and, and they're things that are, you know, politically sort of historical, philosophical. I mean, a lot of it is just, it's it's like it's like word salad from you know from uh you know people who are working on civil rights stuff which you know no reason why we wouldn't be supportive of people who want equality for others and or, or people in their group but i just don't see how it it's not a central value set and i think when you centralize it uh that's when that's when we just we're, we're just confused i think we get easily confused I, I just think people don't know how to respond to it 
Uh, I've gotten a little better at it because I kind of I can see it now and the damage that it does. I've watched it do damage to people's uh, ability to have conversations with people of other ilks, you know, and that's hor horrific to me. That's just that's a that's pathetic. I mean, that's that's a that's like the opposite of what you want, right? Unless, of course, you want everybody to be uncomfortable. And if that if that's the goal, then you know, uh, okay. I, I just I just don't think that's a that's a great way to approach the topic. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. No, I think you're right. I think you know you and I are a little bit uh, you know in in a subset of people who actually enjoy talking through things and are comfortable with differences and you know can sometimes find the right words to express our views on things and. You know, not everybody is really as interested in that as, as we are. And, um, you know, I think for those people, sometimes it's just like, look, we disagree. Let's not talk about it. Let's not even be friends. Yeah. <laughs> I think that does happen a lot. Um, and, you know, I mean, what a, the reason why we're here is that I think these things need to be talked about. And, you know, I, I probably don't talk enough with people that I vehemently disagree with on these kinds of things. But uh, but I talk more than the average person with people that I you know disagree with um, cordially and civilly as as far as you know the other person will allow it. And I think there's there's a lot of confusion as to what it means to have a set of values that centers around religion instead of um instead of politics and i say that as someone who's fairly convinced that this whole wokeness is a religion but i just don't think they believe it is and so they get around it um but when you're talking about a value set to a christian it's it's really about it's it's deeply anthropological right and unless you're just really ignorant of both genetics and uh, the Bible and, okay, everything, then uh, that is not going to allow for um, something like, you know, white supremacy or, or racism or hatred or bigotry or none of that stuff has any room with our value set. Um, people have made it fit and fit the square peg in the round hole historically that, you know, the KKK did that, I guess. And, and, you know, neo-Nazis and there's people that still do that nonsense. Um, but your average Christian has no use for it. And your average Southern Christian has even less use for it. And the reason is, is we know, like we, you know, I mean, we, we weren't around, but our parents were, and we could read history books. We learned about it in school. Like anybody that thinks that Southerners are just being taught this whitewashed sort of rosy picture of American history is kidding themselves. We've had to deal with the fact that we were the, you know, maintainers, progenitors and of Jim Crow for our entire lives. That's all we talk about when we talk about American history in the 20th century is either wars or Jim Crow. 
that's pretty much what we talk about. That's what American history is to a Southerner. It's two big ass wars followed by a couple of really, really bad ones and Jim Crow. That's what we hear. That's what we talk about. We talk about racism. We talk about separated water fountains and how stupid that is. And that, and the thing is, is that we're not, we look at those things as, as really, really dumb and really, really not Christian. It doesn't matter whether somebody in 1950 something said that a good Christian would believe it. They were wrong and they would be wrong now in the, in the discussion. So there's no reason to conflate the things unless you're just trying to play gotcha and blame somebody for things. Let's other just hope that 50 years from now, our grandchildren are in school learning about back around the turn of the century when they had separate bathrooms for two genders called men and women <laughs> and that people didn't get to pick their gender it was a don't make me, them at birth based don't on make their me come out there. <laughs> i will get in my car no i uh can you believe the that thing is i'm i'm aware i'm well aware of where analogies break down i mean loving v virginia and what's the name of the uh, the same sex uh, marriage case? It's not coming to me. Starts with a G, I think. Anyway, not the same thing. Just because people use the Bible to say that interracial marriage should be outlawed doesn't mean they were right, and it doesn't mean it was biblical. I mean, actually, it's hilarious to try to think that interracial marriage is biblical. It's it's just it's just not. I mean, that interracial marriage is not, you know, not allowed in the Bible. It's, just, it's, it's, it's anathema to reason and science and everything else, right? I mean, here's history. the deal. The Bible is a very long book, and you could find any verse or two or three to pull out of there to support almost anything <coughs> you'd like to if you take that scripture out of context or don't understand, you know, why that particular book was written, who it was written by and for what reason. And, you know, the, the, there are people who have studied the Bible their whole lives who don't always have, you know, who, who, who still are learning, you know, but people who have no, who have not studied the Bible or who have not studied theology, never read one theological book, you know, want to make judgments about what Christians believe. It's like, you know, yeah. they're, they're basing it on. It is, you know? it is hilarious. I mean, it's almost like people making gun laws and know nothing about guns. You know, it's a similar. <laughs> I mean, I've I've watched that for years too. You know, they knew nothing about it, and they they know how to solve the problem though somehow. <clears throat> well, and I don't want to. You know, this isn't a theology show. It's not a religion show. It's not a show strictly for those who are believers. So I don't want to feel like anybody's left out. But those who are believers, if you're listening and you're and you're talking to your Christian friends, just just know that that most Christians are not theologians and most Christians do not know everything there is to know about what's right and what's wrong in Christianity. The reason I know that is because how many denominations of Christianity are there in the United just in the, in the United just in the United States? I mean Protestant faiths, there's, well, I don't know, a few thousand, you know, different 
people who think they know what they are supposed to know about Christianity, and they're all different. Well, they can't all be right, you know. Um, I'm Orthodox. Yeah, the, you know, one could argue the original church, blah, 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 blah. But there are different sects of Orthodoxy in the United States. You know, it's it's crazy. It's not true in every country. Most of the Orthodox churches are are more uniform in other countries. The Amer just, But, you know, the U.S. is different. We have competing uh, jurisdictions, if you will. Right. And Jesus so, himself, and they don't Jesus agree himself, on everything. though, was so unorthodox. You know, that's why I don't really worry about it so much. What's like, that? I said Jesus himself was so unorthodox that I just don't worry about it all that much. That That's adorable. I mean, that's just the, <laughs> cutest, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. I'm not orthodox Jewish, uh, Jessica, orthodox Christian. But, uh, well, you can I'm say that his entire approach towards religion was rather unorthodox and you know, we can talk about all these thousands of different strains of Christianity. I don't believe that Jesus came to establish religion, um, you know, per se. I think religion is man-made, and as such, it makes sense that there are thousands of different versions of it. I'm not particularly obsessed with what is the nature of the original church, you know, you know, who's carried it out. Well, I think that that's fair to say, uh, I, I think it serves us to be obsessed with it to a degree, but to your point, um, uh, one really good book on, on this concept, and it's a small book, and I recommend it to anyone who wants to understand, you know, modern orthodoxy. Um, Alexander Schwingman wrote a book called uh, For the Life of the World. One of the points he makes is that we whine and gripe and moan and complain about secularism all the time, right? I mean, that's what religious people do. You know, secularist this, secularism that, and humanism that, blah, blah, blah. The point is, is that secularism is a is our invention. Like, we created it, right? And it is literally the flip side of the religion coin, right? Yeah. We, made, we made religion, and we want religion to work in a certain way, and if you flip the coin over, you get secularism. They're... they're they have the same, we want religion to operate in a way that serves our needs in the present and what we want to accomplish in our communities or in our lives or, you know, so some people in the very extreme cases, it's just self-help. You know, they're just, they're just trying yeah. to find that Christianity that serves them best. Sure. And others, it's more, they want to help others. And so whatever, whoever's feeding the most homeless, that's, you know, that or, or hungry or, or how, that's who I'm going to help. That's the best church because they're helping the most people. And that that's not necessarily the way religion is supposed to work right. or Christianity is supposed to work either. So what we've done is we've created this sort of cottage industry of religions. And we've done it for, you know, several hundred years. And, um, and, and secularism is just a response to it. In other words, secularism is just, well, you can have all these things. You can help yourself and be independent and be loving and caring and help people without all that pesky, you know, why why even try faking it anymore? Why even try to pretend that you're going to do this God thing when all you really want are all these other things? And the truth is secularism very often does a better job of helping with the things that you want. The reason is, is because there's no attachments. There's no... There's no, you don't have to fake anything. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to, 
um, you don't have to attach yourself or, or, you know, find the wiggle room in scripture, whatever it is you're trying to do to make your religion fit your needs. Secularism makes that a lot easier. You know, you just do it. If you want to feed the hungry, well, you know, feed the hungry, right? There's your religion right there. You want to save the environment? Save the environment. There's your religion right there. You don't have to, you don't have to attach it to some all-knowing God that you can't really ever really truly understand anyway. And even your most devout Christian, actually the most honestly devout Christian will tell you, there's I'm not going to understand it, right? So secularism is just the flip side of religion, to your point. And I think, I think what happens is when people look at religion, what they see, and it, it kind of goes to your earlier point about Southerners asking where you go to church. Well, okay, which, you know, which branch are you, are you being a Christian in, right? They're already trying to put them in a, <clears throat> now a lot of Southerners will do it because their main, their main social structure is based on where they go to church. Right. And so they want to know if they know some people in common, especially if it's a big church. They're like, Hey, maybe we go to the same church. Right. right. Exactly. That's yeah. more what it is. I think more of a social thing, but yeah, I get what you're saying. I a hundred percent agree. Um, that the most important thing that a church needs to have is it needs to be speaking truth, like truth with a capital T. And, um, you know, to the extent that it's doing that, all of those other things will fall into place. But if all of those other things are the goal and you're stepping over truth to get there, all of those other things will suffer. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something along the lines of seek heaven and all the things of earth will follow naturally. Seek earth and you will get neither. Something along those lines. Not a direct quote, but I think the same is true, um, you know, in a church environment. And um, but, but I think that the truth can be spoken and taught and in many different types of churches and is. Um, and, you know. To one extent or another, you're more of an intellectual than I am. I think it's more more important to you to make sure that, like, that there's the least amount of cognitive dissonance happening in your faith environment. Sure. Where for me, I feel a little bit more comfortable with some, some, uh, you know, intellectual ambiguity, and um, you know, I'm a little bit more experiential than you are. And I'm just intellectual enough to be able to acknowledge that. <laughs> well, I, I will, I'll say this, that um, um, I, I've become more experiential because, because it's required. In other words, I, I, how should I put this? Okay. So let's go back to the first conversation about the movie and poetry right so in order for me to experience that movie the right way <clears throat> i have to treat it like a poem and not like a like an essay right that's the first thing like if it's an essay uh or it's a short story which is most movies are based on short stories right and really good ones are based on really good short stories uh, some really good movies are based on kind of mediocre short stories, but it's that kind of format that I'm most familiar with and analyze in a movie. So a lot of what I'm trying to do now 
as a part of my faith is trying to understand the poetic side of, of what it means to go to church. And if you are Orthodox, uh, then that's not uh, a suggestion. That's a requirement. Like in other words, it doesn't work unless you let that part of it work, which is why no one is going to like hand you a bunch of books to read about, about it because it is something that has to be sort of experienced and it experience and it, and it, and it is, <clears throat> it is dependent upon other people. I mean, it's expressly not uh, Protestant. You know, it, the, the funny thing about the funny thing about um, how, uh, well, I don't want to get too much into that, but the point is, that I think the way we treat religion is very often something that is, and I've mentioned this before, it's another category of things, right? In other words, if uh, of, of it's another box to check on our Facebook profile, right? Or a form, to, you know, fill out a form where, you know, where do you live? What do you do for a living? How, you know, are you married? Uh, how many kids do you have? What's your religion? And it's just one of those things. Whereas I think, I think uh, someone who's a practicing devout religious person, whether they're Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, those are the big five. That's pretty much it. Uh, that covers 97% of all religious people on the planet. Whichever one of those things you are, that's your first thing. Right. If you're if you're actually a devout religious person, everything else fits under that umbrella. It's a, it's a it's a it's an all encompassing. That's what religion is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a full. You know, it's not just something you do once a week or twice a week. If you're really awesome, it's it's supposed to be something that's all encompassing. And I think that's that's why when you when you point to people and say, well, you know, those evangelicals are x then we kind of like go no we're not. i mean some of them might be but that's not that's not what it means to be an evangelical or that's not what it means to be catholic or that's not what it means to be muslim or whatever it is so i just think um i think people have a tendency to decentralize religion when they're talking about other people uh and i think many people who style themselves religious have a tendency to decentralize it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I kept talking until I felt like you, uh, I usually watch you to see if you try to interrupt me, you know, and, and then I stopped talking, but you looked so bored through that whole thing. I didn't know. So eventually I just stopped. Right. So. I was staring at my ring. It's really pretty. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. No, I can see how that would be more exciting than anything I had to say about religion. <laughs> no, it's not. I was totally 100% listening. There were some notifications. I'm, I'm doing this podcast on my phone and there were some notifications coming up and I was actually staring at those while I was listening to you. That's probably why. Right, right. Well, I try to eliminate distractions when I talk to you, Jessica, because I think I do important. too. I don't know what it's on. <laughs> I think my email notifications are on for some reason. All I have all my notifications off. 
You know, I'm not even on Facebook anymore, right? Like at all? At all. Why is that? I just, I really felt like, um, like a prompting to just get off of it. And um, there, there was no dramatic reason or anything. I just um, felt like, okay, I think this is over for me. And I went off of it um, like two or three weeks ago. And for the first couple of days, I kept psychologically wanting to check because it's been something I've been doing for a decade. Sure. After that, it's it's like a whole world has disappeared. <laughs> but <laughs> it's so great. Like, I seriously love it. I took a month off during Lent. It wasn't the whole Lent, but a good chunk of Lent I took. Maybe it was before Lent. I can't remember. I have to go back and see. But I took an entire month where I may have looked at it once or twice because I had some stuff for work I have to check occasionally. But I didn't read any posts. I didn't look at my feed. I didn't, you know, whatever. And for a whole month. And uh, it was nice. The problem is I have too many connections on there. Like I have too many people that that's been our major form of communication for too long. Right. right? I mean, it took you a week to realize I wasn't going to respond to your Facebook messages like right. when that happened. Right. And now you and I are texting. Right. So that's an example yep. of you and I don't need Facebook anymore to interact, but I've got like 200 friends that I don't have their phone number unless I, I know. you know, so I'm going to start reaching out and doing like, and like here and I've gone on messenger like three times and just messaged somebody and said, you'll have to connect with me through text. I don't do Facebook anymore. Uh, I'm, I'll tell you, it's a huge relief not to have to see what 2000, 3000 other people are doing each day and let them know what I'm doing and, um, and it's bear uh, all the burdens of the world and know all the stupid things people do and say, I mean, yeah. it's just been lovely. Yeah, you don't. You're not like when you're talking to a friend, even if it's recorded. You're not distracted by the notifications that come, like that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was an email notification, and it was dumb. I don't know. But I've I, never had email notifications on my phone because yeah, it's just too it many. Oh, it's a new phone. Well, I think uh, I want to give you a chance to to kind of wrap it up for us uh, and and come up with a rule for the day because this has been kind of meandering. So, <laughs> give us a give us a Southern Belle, charming Southerner rule for the day. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. I know. I know. <laughs> It can be a I, traditional Southern Bell rule, but it, it, it's best if it applies to the conversation we've had. Okay, so I'll go back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about Southerners kind of get this this uh, rap for being fake. And it's funny because I picked up my kids from Vacation Bible School last night. Okay, so perfect. That's, a, that's right? quintessential Southern summer stuff, right? There yeah. You go. And I picked up my my ten year old daughter is as sassy as they come. I mean, sure. Sometimes I'm like, where did you come from? Oh no, I can't imagine the, where she gets that from. That's just shocking. Yeah. <laughs> she gets in the front seat of the car, and I'm like, you know, how was vacation Bible school tonight? And she says, Oh gosh, She's like everybody there is so ridiculously nice and over the top nice. She's like, it's just so fake. And I said, well, honey, you know, how do you know it's fake? Like to the exact point that you were talking about earlier, you know, right. or to etymology and all of that. But 
Um, and so I, I was like, you know, I've found in my life that some people just gen genuinely are just very kind, sensitive souls. And, you know, that's just the way that they are. Just take it at face value. She's like, oh, no. She's like, it's so fake. And I'm like, well, I go, well, what do you think about me? Like, do you think I'm a nice person? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she's like, well, you're nice enough that it's believable, but you're not so nice that I know it's fake. And, and I said, yeah, well, you are. I said, I think, you know, you need to know, like, these people at, at church, like, some of them are just really, really nice people. I think you should just take it at, take it at that value, you know, but it, it kind of really goes straight to what we were saying today. And I think in the South, one of the things we know, one of the secrets I've learned in the South is we all go through peaks and valleys, right? And sure. Going through those valleys, Southerners know that the secret is to wake up put your lipstick on, do nice things for other people, put a smile on your face and fake it until you make it. Fake it till you make it. Yes. That's some, a good one. There is some darn truth to that. You know, get Absolutely. up, do what you're supposed to do, be a kind person and go through the steps and, and pretty soon it will catch up with you. You know, there, I heard well, a great song the other day that said, God is, is the God of both mountains and valleys, you know, he's there through all of that. And Southerners just really get that. They're not afraid to, to be joyful through the valleys and the mountains. And, and I think that it, it pervades the culture and that's a good thing. Yes. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think that's good. I, it's, it's uh it actually connects pretty well with how I consider uh, you know faith in general, right? In other words, <laughs> or being a good Christian, some, sometimes you know you, you're you have to do things to get to to get to the point where you're doing it genuinely. Yeah, you know so it takes it takes time, it takes repetition and um, yeah, there's a lot more to say about the experiential versus uh, intellectual side of things. I thought that was interesting of your uh, when you said that. Um, it's a, uh, it's a that that takes that takes effort and energy for sure. Um, anyway, well, look, uh, I enjoyed it, and uh, thanks for the rule. I like I like not having to come up with a rule after the fact, like going through an episode going. What is the rule? For, I don't know. I have to make something. I have to, you know. We were all over the place today. Yeah, no. We started with Terrence Malick, uh, ended with, you know, fake it till you make it. I like it. Well, Terrence well, Malick's films are very meandering, so I feel like it was very poetical. That's right. We had a poetic. Uh, we, you know, mimicked that in our podcast. Absolutely. And I think what that means is. a symbolic artistic gesture. That's right. And what, what most people, uh, what they need to do is is watch the uh is uh watch or listen to this multiple times before they try to you know before they <laughs> decide to overanalyze it please don't do that to yourselves folks please. yeah exactly <laughs> so thanks again and for those who are listening or watching please go have a great conversation with play by the rules
Thanks for listening to Rules of the Game. Please give us a five-star review and share with all your friends who are interested in thoughtful and entertaining discussions. Be sure also to visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash rules of the game and on Facebook at facebook.com slash ROTG podcast. If you're interested in joining the conversation as a contributor or lively discussions with other thoughtful citizens, then go to greatconversations.us. Also last, but certainly not least, check out our sponsor and benefactor, Independent Education at indead.us, where they mastered the art of the micro school before it was cool.